Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology. It's been a little while since we launched our pilot podcast on the excavation at Glendalock and I want to apologise for the delay. But we do have some really great discussions coming up and I hope you bear with us. We're going to begin with a discussion on Mesolithic Island, a period that is traditionally considered to begin sometime after the end of the Ice Age, around about 12,000 years ago or so, and that ends with the arrival of farming some 6,000 years ago. But what comes to mind when you picture Mesolithic Island? Do you think of small bands of hunter-gatherers living a precarious existence in the dark, impenetrable forests? Do you wonder about what people believed back then? Or where they even came from originally? I was thrilled to have the opportunity to discuss the Mesolithic period with Professor Graham Warren of UCD. We discussed some of these ideas along with talking about how we go about understanding the story of some of Ireland's earliest inhabitants. I certainly learned a lot from talking to Graham, so I really hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Amplify Archaeology, and today it's very exciting. I'm here with uh, Professor Graham Warren, who's the head of school at uh, University College Dublin uh, School of Archaeology. And today we're going to be talking uh, about the Mesolithic. We're going to begin at what might be the beginning uh, in terms of Irish archaeology and history. And but Graham, could you explain a little bit about the Mesolithic? When was it, and what was Ireland like at the time? The the, the Mesolithic is um, normally defined as being a period of time after the end of the last Ice Age, which, strictly speaking, is about 11,700 years ago, down to the first arrival of farming technologies in Northwest Europe. So in, in Ireland, those farming technologies turn up probably around 4,000 BC, and the first really good evidence we have of people is around about 8,000 BC. It might be something earlier than that, and we can, we can talk about that. But the Mesolithic is that period from the end of the last Ice Age through to the arrival of farming. So somewhere in the order of five and a half, six thousand 6,000 years of Ireland's story is the story of hunter-gatherers. And at a, again, at a, at a European level, this is a period of time where in kind of temperate Europe, what you have is the formation of deciduous woodlands. Not mm. constant, there's breaks in them, there's variety in them, but compared to the Ice Age landscapes of Europe, which were open and upper Paleolithic communities, adapted to those open landscapes and hunting lots of migratory game, mm. this was a very different resource base, and the mm. hunting and gathering communities adapt their ways of life to that resource base. And in terms of you know those kind of dates, how does Ireland compare with mainland Europe and, and, and can other parts of the world? Does Ireland come to the Mesolithic and, and notably later than everywhere else, or is it a gradual process all the way across? Yeah, I mean, if, if we think about Europe, there's a, there's a couple of parts to that question. So mm. the, in some parts of Europe, the, the boundary between what we might call the Upper Paleolithic or the Late Glacial 
and the Mesolithic is continuous. There mm -hmm. were people living in that place, and one day we called them Late Paleolithic, and the next day we called them Mesolithic. Sure. In Ireland and other parts of Northern Europe, that wasn't the case, and this period saw the recolonization mm -hmm. of these northern areas. And actually, Ireland seems to lag several thousand years behind Britain, and that's perhaps something we can talk about and think about the, think about the reasons. In terms of the adoption of agriculture, again, mm -hmm. as a European level, you have a, a shift in date from Southeast Europe, which has the earliest dates as agriculture spreads in from the, from the Near East, perhaps around 7,000 BC, and you then get to the Atlantic fringes of Europe, where Ireland, Britain, Southern Scandinavia, they all adopt agriculture broadly the same time, around about 4,000 BC. And that kind of came about largely, I suppose, because the ice had shifted. They, they were able to access the land. Would that be the case? That that would be, you know, the uniting determinant factor. Yeah. So the 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 the, the climate change at the end of the last glacial is really complicated. There's warm periods. There's cold periods. Mm -hmm. There's ice at a international level still having a profound impact impact on the climate, even mm -hmm. though it's not present in in Ireland at that time. But broadly speaking, you have the, the warming of northern Europe, meaning the migration of plants and animals into those environments and humans following those. Mm -hmm. we, we sometimes think of that as a kind of almost a, a heroic human urge to explore. You know, the, the weather's improved, we can go further north, let's see what's there. But in some senses, it's interesting to think about it the other way around. These were communities in some cases that were adapted to hunting large game who lived in open landscapes. Mm -hmm. As climate changed, those open landscapes moved further north. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, you can think of these communities as actually following their world as it moved further into the north. And it's a slightly different, slightly different way of conceiving it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's very much at a, at a European level. The evidence from Ireland is that little bit later or the strong evidence from Ireland is that a little bit later in terms of when, when things definitely And speaking of evidence in Ireland, you know, do we have much? I know that there's uh, a couple of kind of famous sites that uh, regularly think of when we think of the Mesolithic in Ireland, Mount Sandal in County Derry, we think of Ferritus Cove in uh, County Kerry, I believe. Um, but is, uh, apart from that, in Loch Borough, of course, in the Midlands, do we have a lot of other evidence from recent archaeological work? Yeah, there is. I mean, it's not as, it's not as frequent as for later periods of sure. prehistory, but there have been really important sites turned up in the context of developer-funded mm -hmm. archaeology. So at Clownstown, for example, mm. we have beautiful fish traps preserved in lake yeah. muds. Um, at Northall Quay, Spencer Dock in Dublin, again, fish traps preserved in estuarine muds there. Mm. There's been important work on lake edge settlement in the Midlands as well, excavations going back over, over many years there. So mm. there's a number of really important sites it isn't quite as, as, it's not as frequent as archaeology of later periods, not least because in some instances the, that later activity has disturbed or destroyed yeah. the Mesolithic activity. So what sure. you're left with are the, are the stone tools yeah. themselves. But the record is, it's really quite, quite rich. It ranges from elaborate evidence of funerary rituals such as hermitage um, in Lim Limerick, Mm -hmm. um, again, we can we can 
talk about the, the details of that a little later on through settlement sites and buildings, sources of stone. There's an enormous range of material to try and make sense of. There really is. And with that, I, I suppose, Richard, was it that kind of... What was it, the story of the Mesolithic, that really uh, enticed you? Of all periods of Irish archaeology, I suppose, um, why did you pick the Mesolithic period? It's, it's a good question. And I, the, I, I'm, I'm smiling because of, I was at home at my parents' house at Christmas and going back through a box of stuff in the, in the loft and found some old schoolwork of mine from when I was eight or nine years old, which included some very careful depictions, copying, I seem to remember, from a from an encyclopedia of mm. the life of prehistoric hunter-gatherers. Yeah. But there was obviously something there from very young. Yeah. My, my path into archaeology was slightly unusual. I didn't do it as an undergraduate degree. I'm not just okay. archaeology. I came back in later, and mm-hmm. the Mesolithic was one of the first things I encountered there. Yeah. As well, I had just been traveling, um, particularly in places like Tibet, so I had an interest in mobile cultures and how that yeah. works. So yeah. it just kind of built built from all of that very naturally. And I'd worked, really on, I'd worked on the, the British Mesolithic, particularly the Scottish Mesolithic, yes. before I came to Ireland, and it kind of made sense while I was here to, to work away on the Irish stuff. No, that's a really interesting approach to that. And I think, you know, when one of the ways I suppose we understand or we often think of traditionally people living a, a hunter-gatherer existence in Ireland is we often think uh, and make comparisons uh, with contemporary hunter-gatherer or near-contemporary hunter-gatherer societies such as in Papua New Guinea or nomadic uh, groups. Is, the, um, is that a particularly useful tool do you find or do you think that there's um, inherent dangers to some degree in projecting backwards in that sense by looking at contemporary groups the, it, it's absolutely essential to what we do and yeah. we can't avoid doing it and that, that answer, the analogy ethnographic analogy mm-hmm. is central to Mesolithic archaeology, ethnographic mm-hmm. analogy is central to almost all kinds of archaeology, it's mm-hmm. just we don't always acknowledge that, so the, the use of analogy, moving from something we don't know, yeah. as in social life in the past mm-hmm. and making sense of that by comparisons to things that we do know social life yeah. in ethnographically observed groups in the present uh-huh. that's a really vital interpretative step it is fraught with danger in that it carries the real risk that we could make a, a mirror of the present in yeah. the past so to give one example there's a really nice piece of work done some oh, like 25 30 years ago now mm-hmm. where they looked at the distribution of stone tools in the early Mesolithic site at Mount Sandal, yes. which you mentioned earlier. Mm. And they tried to identify particular functions associated with those stone tools. So they had an area where hide was being processed, and they had an area where arrows or projectile points were being manufactured, microliths projectile points. And mm. they argued that most hunter-gatherers in the present mm. have a gendered division of labour. So that yeah. women do domestic tasks and men do hunting. Mm-hmm. Again, it's it's not true of all hunter gatherers, but it's mm-hmm. a it's a generalization. Yes. And they then use that generalization to say that we can identify a female space in the building at Mount Sandal yeah. and a male space in mm-hmm. the building. Now, on one hand, that's a really nice piece of work which allows us to think about gendered activity in the past mm-hmm. and the use of a ten thousand year old building. On the other hand, 
it's basically turning around to say that gender relationships in the past were exactly the same as in the present. So it's yeah. an example of that potential problem with ethnographic analogy. Absolutely. But I was, <laughs> I was always struck when I started teaching hunter-gatherer archaeology here. Mm-hmm. The students would just keep on saying, why is there so much ethnographic analogy? Why is there so much analogy in hunter-gatherer archaeology? Yeah, yeah. And my answer always was that there's exactly as much analogy in this as there is in Neolithic archaeology or mm-hmm. Bronze Age archaeology. It's mm-hmm. just that hunter-gatherer archaeologists are honest and upfront <laughs> about the extent of the analogy, whereas it's often hidden elsewhere. But it, yeah. it's, it's a critical tension, how we move between unknowns and how we make, sorry, how we make sense of unknowns reference to things that we know about the present. Well, I think that's the way that any learning happens, isn't it? It's to build that bridge between what we currently understand and yeah. what we're seeking to understand. That, that's how you learn anything. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's very interesting. I think um, I worked myself for about a year surveying uh, sites in Australia mm-hmm. um, with different um, groups there. Uh, and um, it, it was a completely different sense of archaeology and a completely different way of looking at the landscape, I suppose, that I found quite an interesting approach, you know. Uh, we... but, but then I think from that, sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt, you then have all of the all of the challenges about those analogies and comparisons. Mm. So can one make meaningful comparisons between hunter-gatherer groups in the Australian present yes. and hunter-gatherer groups in the Irish past? Absolutely. The Australian landscape is, often, is obviously profoundly different Absolutely. in terms of environment mm-hmm. than Ireland. Mm-hmm. So is the basis of our comparison that they're both hunter-gatherers or hunter-gatherers are in some way the same? Or yeah. should we be looking for similar environments? Mm-hmm. The, the sad reality of it is that most hunter-gatherers today tend to live in marginal environments. They yeah. have been marginalised yes. by the expansion of agricultural groups and industrial groups, mm-hmm. and they tend to survive in places where, frankly, farming isn't going to be very profitable. So the Australian outback, yes. the Arctic forest environments overall, and they live in very, very difficult conditions, often at significant stress and mm-hmm. risk from the actions of states as well. So yes. they are... Yeah profoundly influenced by the modern world in which they live. Yes. You have to be incredibly careful then about making comparisons on between those societies and those of the past. Well, I think that's a really good point, and, and it's quite timely in a sense as well. I mean, when we look at uh, the new regime in Brazil, for example, and the pressures that that is going to put on indigenous groups, and in some ways it almost feels like the societies and the ways of living which was more in harmony with the world have almost been completely destroyed by, I suppose, the push to industrialization and modernization. And there's perhaps lessons there that we perhaps should have learned about living more in harmony because we're going to be paying the costs of not doing that with things like climate change, for example. Yeah, and that, that touches on a huge, huge range of really important issues. The... Um, Bolsonaro's election is a disaster for indigenous diversity in mm-hmm. in the Amazon. He he has said that he wished the Brazilian army was more like the American cavalry because they exterminated the native yeah. communities. Yeah. Um, and I know sure. a number of people working with hunting and gathering groups in that area who are very, very clear just what extent of a disaster this is mm-hmm. for all of those different groups. So if people have the capacity to engage in... Um, contacting politicians, working with organisations like Survival International in order to raise awareness, they really should be because it's a it's a really really terrible situation they're in. It is, and and it shows as well uh, to some degree 
the very fragile delicacy that exists in, in some cases that you can have a, a society that has existed with a particular way of life that can just very rapidly be changed um, from outside pressure. Or it's the arrogance of, um, I forget his name now, but the, the missionary who sadly late last year was killed um, trying to land on the Sentinelese, yeah. a group yeah. of hunting and gathering communities who have made it damnably clear to not yeah. want to be contacted. Yeah. And the arrogance of that missionary unfortunately yes. led to his life being taken. And yeah. you know, there was no need for him to, to do that. The, the no. risks that he posed to that group were very, very substantial yeah. in terms of the the diseases he would have been carrying mm-hmm. beyond whatever says I have the right to say that my Christian culture is better than, yeah. than their traditional culture. But, yeah. you know, these are hunter-gatherers play a very powerful role in ideas about progress and change yeah. over time and the, the civilising mission, um, mm-hmm. and that's just one example. I think so, yeah. I mean, uh, when when you're considering that aspect, we tend to think of um, religious missionary work being major pressure on hunter-gatherer societies, as in that case. But does the modernisation and the consumption, capitalism itself, is uh, has a missionary almost zeal of conquest? And you and you could add. Um a, the biggest international conference on hunting and gathering communities is called CAGS, the Conference on Hunting and Gathering Societies. Mm-hmm. It dates itself back to 1966 and the original Man the Hunter conference. Mm-hmm. I was at that last year in Malaysia and mm-hmm. a number of the sessions there were based around activism and the need for support for hunting and gathering groups across yeah. the world who are under pressure from industry, from state, from religion, sometimes yeah. even from well-meaning conservation, which isn't helping them but yeah. their condition can be very, very poor. And mm-hmm. they need people's help in preserving really significant bodies of knowledge about the world and ways of life which are, are long-lasting in some instances. Absolutely, because the the real danger is um, it's something that you, you can kind of see around some edges that it becomes almost, to some degree, exploited or Disneyfied, that it becomes this... Um, it's paraded out for gawking tourists because you know there's almost not a corner of the earth at the moment which isn't accessible, and that great protection they once had of inaccessibility and difficult uh, difficulty to to get to where they actually are that barrier is largely gone now, so it does need human intervention to to protect it to to form a different kind of barrier, in a yeah. sense. And in some instances, these traditional societies are carrying knowledge that's imparted over thousands of years so yes. there was a couple of years ago a bit of work done on showing how australian aboriginal stories yeah. of great floods or islands appearing suddenly out of nowhere changing sea level basically yeah. was actually fairly accurately recording the changing sea level of the early holocene period wow. and that you could track these stories back about seven or eight thousand years and they were they weren't simply myths they yes. were recording events which had happened it's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's about, um, I suppose, uh, values to a degree that if something is written down in a historical text, it is seen as being more accurate or having more value, but things like oral tradition and, and storytelling and art, to a degree, is more dismissed quite easily by 
by modern society. It is, and actually that's, I think, uh, something that as archaeologists we haven't quite got our head around sometimes, yeah. is actually what form does knowledge take yes. in an oral culture? Because there are a number of oral cultures where objects act as monomics for helping remember stories yes. and tales. And the structure of monuments also acts as ways of helping recall knowledge. Yeah. But there is something there where we come from a literate society, our ideas of knowledge are based around literacy. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we need to just think a little bit more carefully mm -hmm. about the way in which oral cultures and materiality fit together to, to give that knowledge base and to transmit knowledge across generations. So, looking back at Mesolithic Island, you know, how did people travel then? How did people get here? You know, was it... We have this kind of picture, I suppose, of Ireland being covered in this dense, impenetrable black forest full of wolves and all manner of scurry things. But what do you think the landscape was like? Uh, I, I suppose it's quite a long time period we're, we're talking about, but what do you think the, the first landscape might have looked like that they encountered? And how do you think that changed, or how did people change the landscape during that period? Okay, so there's a, there's a couple of things to, to unpick there. And mm -hmm. this idea of um, Ireland being a dense woodland mm -hmm. and people just clinging to the edges, that's been a really powerful... Um, motif in accounts of the Mesolithic in Ireland. It goes back to yes. McAllister in 1934, where right. bits of that writing effectively described the Mesolithic people as being scared. Yes. Of the yes. So they, they just stay on the edge. I mean, he talks yeah. about it, them being shunned by hobgoblins and demons. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. But in terms of what the environment was like, there's a couple of periods we need to think about. One is the potential appearance of people in the late glacial in Ireland. And the okay. other is the appearance of people in the Holocene, what we'd always call Mesolithic. Mm -hmm. So to, to put this in context and to go mm -hmm. back to that comment I made earlier about a slight lag mm -hmm. in what's happening in Ireland, the end of the last glacial maximum saw, gave way to a warm period in mm -hmm. Northern Europe, the, the bolling Allerud mm -hmm. period, which probably started about 14,600 years ago, give, okay. or, give or take. Um, and that lasted down for maybe to about 12,700, 12,800 years ago. So there's a couple of thousand years there right. where in large parts of northern Europe you had grasslands reappear, some light scrub woodland. Mm -hmm. And at this time, Britain is very rapidly recolonized by hunting mm -hmm. and gathering groups. Almost as soon as it warms up, mm -hmm. those groups are present in Britain. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, we didn't think there was any activity in Ireland at all mm -hmm. at, this, at this time, through the late glacial. It's called the late glacial, sure. or sometimes people might call it the late upper Paleolithic, uh, yes. that period. Okay. And then the, that warm period ends, and you have the younger Dryas um, uh, cold period, shortly after well, 12,700, 12,800 years ago. That mm -hmm. lasts for about 1,000 years, mm -hmm. down to about 11,700. And mm -hmm. then we have the warm of the Holocene. And mm -hmm. the, the younger Dryas, it mm -hmm. was often assumed that people were driven out of Britain again because it was so cold, and it was only at the very end of the younger Dryas that they began to come back into Britain, mm -hmm. and then they settled Britain from that time. Okay. Ireland, however, there was a, a further delay until yeah. people arrived, until we have evidence from Mount Sandal, maybe 10,000 years ago. So people okay. had been, if you take the old view, People have been present in Britain in the late glacial interstadial mm -hmm. for a couple of thousand years. And mm -hmm. then at the start of the Holocene, there was about 1,500 
years, maybe a little more than that, when people were present in Britain, but mm. not in Ireland, which was weird. Didn't, yes, didn't quite yeah. make sense. Okay. We we now have um, Ruth Carden and Marion Dowd's work on um, assemblages of um, animal bones from mm-hmm. the Alice and Gwendolyn cave in County Limerick, County mm-hmm. Clare. Sorry, mm-hmm. getting getting my locations mixed up. And what they identified there, what Ruth identified there, was a bare kneecap mm. with cut marks on it. Mm-hmm. And that was radiocarbon dated, two radiocarbon dates because the dates were so unusual. And that came back at about 12,600, 12,700 years ago. So the cut marks definitely indicating the presence of humans. Mm-hmm cutting up a fresh bare kneecap for whatever reason one wishes to go about <laughs> cutting up a fresh bare kneecap yeah. but that puts humans in the west of Ireland yeah. about 12,700 years ago. Um, we haven't got any artefacts of that period uh-huh. or anywhere in Ireland we have no artefacts that are of that type but, but it's there. Isn't there one flake or something in the National Museum that they believe, traditionally believed it was from the uh, Paleolithic. Yeah, uh, there are there are two flakes. Uh, there's one on display in the National Museum, and there yeah. is one from slightly further north. Those yeah. uh, have been redeposited by the ice, so oh, okay. they may actually have been moved they in necessarily from, in a context. Yeah. No, not not in the context at all, and they Very would they would likely have been much much older. Okay. But the the interesting thing about the Alice and Gwendolyn cave bone mm. is it's actually a really weird date in a British context. This is just yeah, when it's okay. starting to get really cold and nasty again, uh-huh. and there's very little other evidence from Britain at this period. If, you, yeah. Yeah, if you'd chosen a date somewhere in the middle of that interstadial when it was lovely and warm, that no would problem. make sense. Yeah. But in this cold period at the end, why they're then there in a cave somewhere in the west of Ireland doing weird things to a bear, that's, a, that's I, another problem. I think, you know, there's a certain bit that if you've got to cut up a bear, you know, you must really need to. <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do. So perhaps it was a group on the edge, if you like, uh, that it was in a particularly climatic, challenging time. They were eating whatever they could get, maybe. If that's yeah. what they were doing with the bird, that's leaping yeah. to, it, to all that. It could well be. But, yeah. but at that time, that would have been people in a in a landscape that was fairly treeless yeah, at that okay. point. Um, it would have been an island, yeah. so they would have had to have got there by... By boat, so that's yeah. you know, there's still a, a series of questions about the, the context mm. of that bone, if you like, the social context. People and often make a distinction in this type of colonization mm. narrative between what you might call pioneering or exploration, so yeah, very okay. small scale visits okay. that might not leave much archaeological trace. And right. maybe you bring all your stone tools with you because you don't know where the sources are, yes, and settlement. This might be no more than pioneer visiting. Yes. Uh, and yeah. the settlement actually comes later on, and that's later. what we see in the Holocene period, uh-huh. following Mount, the dates of Mount Sandal in the centuries following 8,000 BC, so following 10,000 years ago. At that stage, <laughs> coming way back to the original question, <laughs> at that stage, Ireland was a generally speaking a, a woodland, mm-hmm. although the character of that woodland changed over time. Okay. It was a birch woodland with some pine in uh-huh. the north at the time of Mount Sandal, and you would have had increasing representation of deciduous trees. Right. In general, the woodland perhaps getting denser, but there would have been open areas within mm-hmm. there as well. And what sort of animals would you have encountered uh, around that period? Compared to many parts of Europe, a limited range. Okay. The, um, so because of Ireland's island status, mm-hmm. a, a number of large mammals in particular didn't seem to make it to Ireland. So okay. Ireland didn't have the auroch, the, the wild cattle, the wild cattle. Of, um, of 
Northern Europe. Ireland didn't have, as part of its natural fauna, red deer, yes. which has obviously been very important to people's understandings of the Mesolithic mm-hmm. elsewhere. Um, it is almost certain that Mesolithic communities brought wild boar with them to Ireland. Okay. So they bought the wild animal and transplanted it. Mm-hmm. They also brought with them dog, which is actually can mm-hmm. be a significant impact on the environment. But the, that comparatively impoverished fauna... Actually, a slightly impoverished flora mm-hmm. as well is mm-hmm. often tied up with ideas about why the Irish Mesolithic is different than the British okay. Mesolithic. It's been a, a, a fairly simple place to look for for explanations of right. why there were differences between the two islands. And was there uh, things like wolves and, and that kind of like, was it a dangerous landscape to, apart from the elements, mm-hmm. was it a dangerous landscape to be There was wolf, there was bear as well. Yeah. And there's a very faint possibility that people brought bear with them. Um, well, deliberately. Okay. <laughs> um, well, we have captive bears in the Mesolithic of northwest Europe. There's a site, right? in, site in France where a poor bear, I think it was four years old when it died, its jaw had grown up around a bit. You can see the deformities My gosh. in it. And coming back to think about ethnographic analogies, mm-hmm. in many northern and hunting and gathering communities, the bear is symbolically a hugely important yes. animal, often considered to be a spirit master of some kind. Yes. And they are very often kept captive and then sacrificed. Well, so it would okay. be you know, it's obviously dangerous to make too much of an immediate comparison there, but that definitely was a captive bear kept by Mesolithic communities. That's now, fascinating. I'm, I don't know. I'm not going to get in a skin boat from Britain with a bear. No, no. <laughs> that's that's, no, that's no, yeah. form of, no form of transport I want yes, to take. Yeah. But the landscape would have held, would have held challenges, and in yes. particular, the perhaps not so much the, the animals, but these are people who at particular times yeah. were routine seafarers. And the sea is yeah. unpredictable and dangerous in, yes. in small boats. With that sort of landscape and those kind of challenges, you know, how did people live? I mean, we speak of hunter-gatherers and we imagine these nomadic tribes, you know, as we were saying, living on the very edge, skirt of the woods and all of that kind of thing. Um, but how did they actually live? Uh, were the camps very much following food patterns um would be following game for example or were they quite territorial in, in a sense do we have any kind of in, in idea of that some although the the evidence is is not as strong as we might like and the okay. first point to make is that even once we from Mount Sandal on we have mm. 4,000 years of yes. the Irish Mesolithic yes. there is no reason to suppose that one way of life one strategy covered all of that period Absolutely. so we, we will have seen change and we mm. probably will have seen variation okay. in the north of Ireland to the south of Ireland, mm-hmm. the inland to, to the coastal regions okay. as well. Although, again, our, our detail of that is not, is not clear. Mm-hmm. The, we do, most people assume that hunter-gatherers are, are nomadic or very, very mobile. Mm-hmm. Very few hunter-gatherers are nomadic in the sense of wandering aimlessly from place to place. There, yes. is, there is structure, there is rhythm to their movement, often yeah. associated with the availability of key resources yeah. across the landscape mm-hmm. at different times of the year. Mm-hmm. In, a, in an Irish context, it's harder to see how that is to do with the movement of, of game overall mm. because of that comparatively impoverished range of fauna which are present. Mm-hmm. Um, might come back to think about boar in just a minute. Uh, salmon, I suppose, would be something seasonal uh, and, and various birds coming in, maybe. The, yeah, I know. mean, th- those sorts of things possibly would have been. So fish runs may yeah. have been 
very important. Not just salmon, but eels, and we know yeah. both of those resources were important. Yeah. The movement of fish along the coast yes. as well mm-hmm. would have been significant. So mm-hmm. we don't always have great detail on that, but it's likely that their lives were bound up yeah. into those rivers. Yeah. We certainly have places in the later part of the Mesolithic, we have a number of sites on the coasts that seem to be occupied repeatedly over mm-hmm. the course of centuries. So there were places that people came back to, mm-hmm. persistent places, yes. if you like, that perhaps were, were anchors or hooks yeah. in a system of mobility that, that worked along there. The, in terms of their environment, there's some evidence that they were deliberately modifying and manipulating mm-hmm. the environment, potentially creating clearings in it, potentially influencing the growth of trees in terms of adventitious coppicing. So Mm. you can look at the wood that's in things like the fish traps from Norfolk Quay and look at the age patterns or harvest of those woods and try and understand the way in which people were influencing the environment. There are hints in the data, and it's only hints, Mm. that people may have been managing wild boar populations. So not just randomly killing them, but actually picking off particular types of animals in right. order to create a sustainable a sustainable herd. But yeah. really the a little bit more work is needed, more samples are needed in order to be able to address that. The number of mm-hmm. sites we have with good faunal assemblages is disappointingly low. Yes, yeah. And, and that's it. It's about, I suppose, trying to build up that picture from these tiny fragmentary evidence in some cases. And It, it is, and that's yeah. the, the, the pressing need for more people doing Mesolithic work yes. in, in Ireland. The sites are very, very hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um, they are not always best suited to recovery on large-scale infrastructural projects, although yeah. there, there have been fantastic examples mm-hmm. of really high-quality work undertaken, which has led to that discovery but it yeah. is a particular kind of archaeology yeah, with its own requirements and it involves I, I think a difference uh, it involves a, an understanding of the landscape perhaps more and, and the differences between the landscape at the time compared to today than some other types of archaeology which would be a little more straightforward if you look in, in, in to some degrees at medieval archaeology the landscape hasn't changed materially massively mm. but in comparison the Mesolithic it's almost like a different country in, in, to some degree yeah it, I mean yeah. Yeah, one, one example of that would be sea level change yes, in order absolutely. to understand Mesolithic archaeology in Ireland you have yeah. to understand the processes of post-glacial sea level change you can yeah. also look at examples where if you take a 10,000 year old hunter-gatherer site in Ireland yeah. that's had 10,000 years of soil formation processes yes. to overwrite any of the subtle features that might be there to transform the distribution of minerals within the soil, mm-hmm. all sorts of things that could make what was perhaps initially ephemeral archaeology really hard to spot. Yeah. A thousand year old monastery isn't going to have some of those some of those problems. So, no. so the challenges are no. different. Ab- absolutely. Um, and looking at some of those challenges and, and the scarcity to some degree of some types of monuments that mm-hmm. is there anything that we can say about mesolithic culture is there any kind of evidence of religion or spirituality or, or, or things like that we, that we can see bits so we can we can clearly see complex ritualized behavior so okay. the cremation burials at hermitage for example involved a, a very very skilled processing of a cremation mm-hmm. involved placing that in a pit with a stone axe an mm-hmm. axe which 
appears to have only been used for a very short period of time and was then deliberately blunted, almost killed, if you like, and placed in the pit. And it's been speculated, it can only be speculation, but it makes sense that that axe was potentially only used for the activities of the funerary ritual and then a marker post placed in there. So that's clearly a a, a sequence of acts of some ritual drama associated with death and loss we, it's harder to speak of the of the meaning of that but but it's showing us that complexity but it does give us that lens to look at the the complexity of the meaning i mean if you have a marker post for a grave it suggests it's somewhere where people can go back to or expect to go yeah. back to whether they live nearby or whether it's somewhere seasonal they come back it, it, it's quite a, a picture in, in, in a way you know yeah and it is and we know at hermitage there are other graves there as well mm-hmm. which possibly are, are showing long-term use of it mm-hmm. and ongoing work by Amy Little, Tracy Collins and colleagues trying to revisit that site could, mm-hmm. could really contribute. There are other things where we can we can look more broadly at other parts of northwest Europe and okay this starts to become a little bit more difficult because mm-hmm. you're becoming geographically more widespread but in a number of areas of Mesolithic Europe you can make a reasonable argument that People may have had shamanistic beliefs okay. or animistic mm-hmm. beliefs, and there's a, a, a good range of evidence for that. So an animist belief, meaning that people may have felt that all things had some kind of the same life force or, or yes. spirit underlying it, or a shamanistic belief that you can make contact with the spirit world and take on attributes yes. of those spirits. And one thing um, I observed a little while ago was if you look at all of the animal bone assemblages from Mesolithic sites in Ireland, mm-hmm. they've surprisingly got the presence of significant birds of prey in there. Right. So peregrine falcons, okay. eagles, owls are a consistent presence in there. Right. Now, And I, I speak not from personal experience on this, mm-hmm. but these are all apparently edible species, but they really don't taste great. Yes, yes. And one idea I, I, I played with, really, was the idea that these are being consumed not for their taste mm-hmm. or not for hunger, but they are being consumed because they are dangerous hunting animals. Mm-hmm. And maybe by consuming parts of a peregrine falcon, you take on the, the skill of the peregrine, the eyesight of the peregrine. Yes, so that idea about animism and shamanism, they're influencing potentially what people eat. But I think that it's important as well because people think of hunter-gatherer lives as pretty miserable uh-huh. and they're determined by you know, what happens to be available today, what are we going to eat, and it's all about subsistence and need. Yeah. And that just opens up a slightly different window on mm. the choices that people are making and the richness of those lives, which was undoubtedly there. Yeah. It's our challenge to, to find ways of recovering aspects of that. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's that's really interesting. And um, I suppose one of the the pictures people have is that it was a really hard, constantly at the edge of starvation kind of existence. But when you think about it, these were highly skilled people who put in a couple of hours work in the day and then, you know, had the rest of the time. <laughs> it's, it, they had a better work-life balance than we have, for example, I would say, you know, it's at certain times of year. Yeah, it's anyway. an interesting point. It comes yeah. back to a, a really key idea in hunter-gatherer studies known as the Original Affluence Society. Uh-huh. And this was an idea that came from Marshall Salins in the 1960s. And he said that hunter-gatherers don't have to do much work. They do mm-hmm. a couple of hours, and then they spend the rest of the day lounging 
around mm. and that this was in terms of the 60s and the counterculture he said that there's two ways for a society to to fulfill its needs mm-hmm. one is you you need and you want everything mm-hmm. and therefore you maximize production this mm-hmm. is the, the capitalist model and then what he described as the the zen alternative mm-hmm. which is you don't want anything mm-hmm. and therefore you don't need very much and you're completely completely happy and that politically became quite an important idea about this original affluence. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the detail of it has fallen away. Whilst the men may have sat around not doing too much, the women were working pretty damn hard. Yes, I and imagine. Lo- yeah. And lots of those times of, it's even yeah. how we conceive of work against rest. Yes. So times yeah. sat around might be times sat around the fire, but making an arrow putting together cordage, doing all those sorts of things. Telling the stories of the tribe, which is passing on the oral history and and, and all of that kind of thing. It's it's all about ascribing value to to how somebody spends their time. All of those things. But I don't doubt there were times when hunter-gatherer communities in Ireland suffered losses through starvation. Absolutely. But I also don't doubt there were times when that was not a problem and that they were able to live rich, meaningful lives. So... I suppose moving on towards the end of the Mesolithic, you know, do you think that the the way that we view the end of the Mesolithic is that there was an introduction of farming and that people started to do that, and that's what we're calling the Neolithic period. Mm-hmm. Um, could you say a little about, do you think that was a, a process of experimentation among indigenous groups, or do you think that there was new cultures coming in from the outside that brought the ideas of farming um, into Ireland at that stage or do you think there was a combination of the two in, in different parts of the country and, it, uh, and we might never know the, it, it's a long standing and complicated complicated problem mm-hmm. the, so some things we can be certain of the domesticated plants and animals that came into Ireland at the start of the Neolithic were foreign to this island Okay. so this was not an indigenous domestication of native species right. the plants and animals that came in were domesticated from elsewhere mm-hmm. And we can say something in a minute about when some of those arrive. But those, yes. those technologies are new. We also increasingly recognise after years of debate, and the contribution from ancient DNA is important here, mm-hmm. we increasingly, increasingly recognise that the arrival of the Neolithic was associated with the movement of people mm-hmm. from outside of, yeah. of Ireland and Britain. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that it was a mass migration mm-hmm. and there are still significant questions about what happened in terms of interaction with the local hunting and gathering groups. Yeah. But this process definitely involved the movement of people mm-hmm. and the movement of new technologies okay. and ideas. Um, and that has been a, a quite a strong emphasis of recent, of recent work. What happened, and that... The dating of that is tricky. So in the centuries following 4000 BC, these things start to happen. Mm-hmm. By about 3700, 3750, we have that classic phase of early Neolithic timber houses. Yes. We have something which really looks like a Neolithic and really looks like a farming community, and there's yeah. no doubt by that stage. Yeah. The period before that mm-hmm. is a little bit more complicated. So yeah. we have a domesticated, presumably domesticated cattle bone in mm-hmm. a late Mesolithic context at Ferritus Cove yes, yes. at about 4,300 BC. Uh-huh. Now, that could be a hunting and gathering group who paddled off to Brittany mm-hmm. and brought back a cow. Mm-hmm. It could be a farming group from Brittany that have paddled over to Kerry and mm-hmm. set up a farm, only to mm-hmm. find that their hunter-gatherer neighbours have decided they don't like this very much and they swipe the cow. Yes. It could be a hunter-gatherer group have gone over to Brittany and brought back a joint of meat. 
Okay. We don't know that kind of detail. It's showing yeah. us contact of some kind, but we don't have much more. And it remains yeah. a, a somewhat isolated example of that find. Oh, yeah. There's a period from about 4000 BC to that house horizon uh-huh. where there are Neolithic things happening mm-hmm. in Ireland, but there it's much harder to understand the exact character of that and how they might be interacting with hunting and gathering groups. Absolutely. I, I think that... Um you know, it does become a little clearer, as you say, a couple of centuries later when you get that house rise and you also get, you know, megalithic tombs and, and, you know, all the things that we classically start to see as Neolithic, but there is that little window there, isn't there? Yeah. That it, it's hard to know exactly what's happened. Yeah, and that, that remains a, a, a period which badly needs really good research, both yeah. on the archaeology and on the environmental side. It's a time of profound climate change. Yes. And we haven't yeah. really unpicked the impacts of that on yes. the Irish landscape. Yeah. You know, farming technologies have been present in Europe for hundreds of years before they finally made the jump across yeah. to, to Britain and Ireland. So what was it that made that the, the time that this happened? Very One possibility is that climate change actually made agriculture more viable on mm. these islands at okay. that point. Mm-hmm. But more work is needed to, to justify that. And, you know, I, I suppose it would be... a Difficult question to answer in that sort of sense, but could you give us, uh, uh, is there any kind of estimate perhaps on what the population of Mesolithic Island might have been towards the later stages of, of it? Fantasy maths. <laughs> Fantasy uh, maths, the, okay. um, This is, it's a very common question, and uh-huh. I, should, I should be able to remember the answers. The way in which people do this is by looking at generalizations about hunter-gatherers uh-huh. living in supposedly similar environments today okay. and using that as an order of magnitude to say roughly what the population of Ireland okay. might have been. So but one tribe has a particular range of... Yeah, so they, they work out how many, how many people do you get every 10 kilometers squared, yes, okay. how it tends to be, right. tends to be unsaid. But the problem is that those estimates vary so much mm-hmm. in terms of the assumptions you make that the range is absolutely meaningless. Yeah, so okay. you get such a variation in the possible estimates that are there mm-hmm. that it's not possible to take any of them seriously. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to use site frequency as any form of measure of mm-hmm. population because of the problems of site destruction, yes. different types of sites for yeah. different periods, different yeah. types of stone tools... I, I work up in the Scottish mountains where one of the sites we excavate the average size of the artefacts from that site is 8 millimeters in yes. maximum length yes, these yes. are things which are so hard to find yes absolutely so site frequency doesn't work and yeah. I'm sorry I don't believe all these people who tell you that some probability distributions of radiocarbon dates tells mm-hmm. you anything about population it tells you a lot about what we've chosen to radiocarbon date but yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't think it tells yeah. us about population so it's this is one of the big problems there's great yeah. work being done in the Norwegian Mesolithic uh-huh. trying to deal with this question of populations properly yeah. we don't have the data available to us at the moment no, that's very interesting. And, and speaking of those tiny, tiny microliths, yes. those very small uh, flint tools, which are part of the composite, yeah. where, whether it's um, arrows or bows or various things, um, there, there was a definite difference, wasn't there, between those and the band flakes, which are much larger, more sturdier stone tools. Do you think that's evidence of a different group of people, or do you think that's evidence that just happens to be that we found these two kind of things and we're making a big assumption? 
There's there's no reason to suppose it's a if it's a different group of people. If uh-huh. it's a different group of people, we've got no idea where they came from because yeah, okay. this is a distinctively Irish Irish and the Isle of Man um, yes. thing. So the change is real. The change yeah. from a early Mesolithic microlithic technology into a later Mesolithic, mm-hmm. where and it, it, it is often cast as being a move to, to band flakes. It's a slightly different change than that, particularly mm-hmm. in the in the strict sense of what band flakes are. Mm-hmm. But the later Mesolithic sees a movement to the use of larger blades and flakes, okay. of which band flakes are a particular type, a particular particular character. The again, there are different explanations put there. One of them is that this is a an adaptation to that distinctive ecology, mm-hmm. that the the pressures, the need for the microlithic technologies die mm-hmm. away and you use the 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 larger blades and flakes, perhaps in large part for manufacturing wooden objects such as fish traps sure. as a response to that. The technologies would also have been a significant change in social mm-hmm. relations. People understand themselves through their use of things, through the ways in which they interact with things, and it's possible that this change reflects different understandings mm-hmm. of the self, perhaps at the same time yeah. as those changing okay. ecologies. There have been suggestions that this reflects the climate change driving population collapse right. in the Mesolithic, and therefore they lose the ability to produce complicated technologies such as microliths and composite tools, mm-hmm. the data isn't available to sustain that argument okay. at the moment. And in any case, if you're using the macrolithic, the later mesolithic tools to make mm-hmm. fish traps and fish baskets, uh, they're, they're very complex. complicated. Yeah, things. absolutely. And, so. and those Clowenstown uh, traps uh, are stunning. They can be seen in the National Museum. Yeah, they're, they're, they're on display. Museum. They're, they're yeah, yeah. absolutely uh, beautiful. Uh, so intricate. So, great. a couple of questions just to finish yeah. up. Firstly, and this is a bit of an open question in a sense, and whatever way you, you choose to answer it would, would be interesting. What value do you think studying the Mesolithic has for us? It's a good question. I wish I knew the answer. <laughs> <laughs> the, no, and this is something I, I, I found myself asking more, and mm-hmm. in part because over recent years, through varied things I've, I've got involved in, I... I now tend to describe myself as a as a researcher into hunter gatherers mm-hmm. who happens to work on the Mesolithic of sure. Europe. So I, I work with archaeologists and anthropologists internationally uh-huh. to try and understand hunting and gathering groups. Yes, and therefore I have to ask the question: Well, well, what value does the the Mesolithic bring? Why should someone who works with Aboriginal groups in Australia today mm-hmm. why should they have any care or interest in what hunting and gathering groups were doing in Ireland in the dim and distant? past yeah and that's i think uh, an important thing that we all need to do to, to mm-hmm. step back from our own little area of interest and try yeah. to articulate why that is why that is the case and i think there mm-hmm. there are reasons why the the mesolithic of northwest europe as a whole mm-hmm. is has a particularly interesting dynamic it's mm-hmm. a it's a rich archaeological record there's a strong tradition a strong understanding of climate change in the area yeah. there are different technological innovations that sweep through the Mesolithic of Europe and are picked up in different in different ways. There are um, major changes such as the arrival of agricultural groups and the mm. processes of change that brings. So there are really strong reasons for being interested in the Mesolithic of Europe mm. as a long-term perspective on hunter-gatherer behaviour, yeah. how their um, belief systems change in response to, to all of that. 
So mm-hmm. I mean, that side of things, we can we can make an argument about why the Mesolithic of Europe matters, and, and yeah. Ireland is a key as a key part of that and distinctive part yeah, of that. Yeah. And the other part of that is is of course there's there's value in if we can get people interested in the Mesolithic and make mm-hmm. them aware of a, a very hidden history yeah. that is that is beneath their feet in mm-hmm. Ireland. It's a it's a period that has little public visibility. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the the museum has some very good displays, but but beyond that, mm-hmm. the that it is not a period characterized by by monuments. So you yeah. you cannot visit a, a Mesolithic New Grange. Yeah. You, you cannot visit a a, a Mesolithic castle. Yes. So people don't encounter that mm-hmm. in the in the same way overall. So having that initial hook to get people interested is is a little bit tricky. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, there's a job of work to be done informing the public about mm-hmm. what the Mesolithic is, why it's important, and why we should care about this kind of 4,000 years plus, I'm being conservative there, that's yeah. the Mount Sandal dates, 4,000 years plus of, of Irish history. Yes, you know, absolutely. It's, it's a very large part of the story of this island, and includes a time where people began to alter and change the landscape. So that's the end of the podcast on Mesolithic Island. I'd just like to thank Graham for his time and insights. I thought it was really fascinating and I hope you enjoyed it too. You can find more information along with links to some of the subjects we discussed, like the amazing Clowenstown fish traps on our website at barterheritage.ie. And that's where you'll also find a link to the first episode, which was about uh, the excavation at Glendalough. Some of the coming podcasts we have lined up include discussions on castles in Ireland, the Beaker period, and a look at Ireland's passage tombs. I'm really looking forward to recording some of those, and I hope you stay with us. They'll be coming out, hopefully, one or two a month over the next little while. I'll let you know when the next one's coming, but do keep a lookout on abataheritage.ie and on our social media channels as well, at Abata Guides. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.